The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, round two in the Premier League and at Brentford, Bumblers v Bees. The 4 nothing versus the good for nothing. We salute the Bees who put United on their knees and brought Ten Hag out in hives and cover the rest of the news too, from the banks of the Trent to the handshake handbags at the bridge, the biggest row over a German manager's handshake since Yogi Love lost off at his. All of that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Listener, Monday the 15th of August, look at me when I'm talking to you. We've got Daniel Story, Charlie Eccleshare and Natalie Gendra here with us today. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Natalie, how have you been? Uh, a little tense after being at Stamford Bridge yesterday, but other than mm. that, yeah, fine. And that wow. was just seeing me. <laughs> <laughs> you were at Stamford Bridge, but also at the yes. Brentford Community Stadium. Yeah, it was a busy weekend. Yeah, definitely. Wow. All right. What was what was everyone's highlight of a of, of a weekend that was rich in storyline? Charlie. Well, I wasn't lucky enough to watch the Brentford Man United game, but I checked my phone at half time to see the score, and I had a feeling United would turn it round. Actually, after you know a week of criticism and all of that, I thought they'd actually get their act together. And it, I know this is a cliche that, you know, don't adjust your screens, but it was one of those moments where I did think, is this one of those times where the app is sort of, you know, sometimes the app defaults to wrong scores and things, just kind of weird stuff happens. I did, it was a real, they can't be 4-0 down at halftime at, at Brentford. Like, I know United have pushed the boundaries of what's possible, but even this, you know, this felt implausible. So that was a, a real uh, pinch yourself moment. You should listen to Duncan Alexander, who Tuesday night last week boldly predicted... Brentford to win that game 8-0. Can you imagine how excited Duncan must have been at half-time? <laughs> yeah. Daniel, what was your highlight? Uh, I mean, a very twee moment, if you'll allow me, at least one this season. But, um, yeah, I was at the City Ground on Sunday and first home Premier League game in 23 years. Uh, the, the the atmosphere was incredible, but the best bit for me, I was there like a couple of hours before kickoff, and there was a big stadium announcement about that they were opening the gates. And the the head of security gave this kind of really long impassioned speech to the stewards about giving people the greatest day of the last two decades and I thought yeah if you're really going to hype up and ramp up the the cliche it starts with the head of security and drips down so yeah it was a it was a brilliant day. We'll hear if it lived up to your expectations later on. Uh, Natalie what stood out for you? Well, I was at Stamford Bridge, but more than that, uh, the, the, the seats for broadcasters are right behind the, the dugouts. So basically, I was on the edge of my seat and at a point, I, I didn't know if I should run, if I should help, uh, just, just <laughs> clearing everyone out because all the action was so close and it was all so very intense and we were following everything that was happening since the first minute and since the first, since the match started, everything was already so intense. Something was about to happen, but I would never guess that that was going to happen. So, definitely a tense moment. Indeed, if you search actually Google for images of the content <laughs> too, there's a particularly shocked, there's a particularly shocked uh, onlooker between the two of them, staring wide-eyed in excitement and a little bit of terror. And it's you, Natalie. Yes, it is. It is. I was <laughs> holding my, my pen uh, and just trying to believe what I was seeing. Didn't, didn't know re really how to react, but I was very caught up in the moment and almost like I was just in between them. It was, it was exciting, to, to say the least. Indeed so. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get on to Tuchel holding Conte's hand uh, very, very soon. Uh, but let's get going with the results first of all. Saturday at Villa Park. Primary school deputy head and PE teacher two man at his mate's barbecue one. Elsewhere, Arsenal were 4-2 winners against Leicester. Saints and Leeds drew 2-2. There were goalless draws for Brighton and Newcastle and Wolves and Fulham. And Brentford were 4-0 winners over Man United. Sunday, quiet afternoon at the City Ground, not for the Forest in their first Premier League home game in 23 years. A 1-0 win over West Ham It finished, while at the bridge, Chelsea spurs with a side order of Tuchel against Conte. Finished 2-2. Monday, it's going to be Liverpool against Crystal Palace. Daniel, I know we can't look at the table yet, mm -hmm. but United at the bottom of it, so I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean... 
last week to, to let people see how the sausages are made. Last week you were quite keen to not have to have a, a huge lengthy discussion about Manchester United Brentford because you felt there might be other opportunities to talk about Manchester United crisis. So don't you look silly this Monday morning. Um, yeah, I mean, y- you can make... You can certainly make conclusions about individual clubs. I don't think you can make comment on the league table, although it is harder when your team goes from the relegation zone to the top half in 90 minutes. I will say that. Mm. All right. Well, Brentford 4, Man United nil was the scoreline. Natalie, you were there. Uh, how how hot was it? Oh, my God. Unbearably hot. And says a Brazilian, OK? And it, it, we are very much used to the heat and it was very unpleasant, especially considering that the press seats were right at the sun. Mm. And actually, it was something that surprised me not only on this match, but during the entire weekend, because I was expecting uh, the matches to be kind of boring and of course second half was more uh you you have the heat and you have one team that's four nil up so of course the rhythm is going to be different but it wasn't such a big factor as i thought it would be it was very warm and but not not for brentford definitely because they were brilliant on 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 first half and it's it's i just during the first half i just saw uh, just watching man united thinking of ten hag during preseason saying that we want to press all day long but we saw a masterclass of pressing from brentford from minute 1 they were committed they were organized they were capitalizing on the terrible mistakes and, and the lack of com- confidence from, from Man United. And I spoke to Thomas Frank afterwards, uh, mentioned the, the, the defeat uh, last season when they played really well against Man United. And he was very happy about it because he talks about progress and about continuity. And, and that's what we see in, in the way they play, the, the recruitment. He said he doesn't believe in second season syndrome. He laughed about it. And he shouldn't because Brentford was brilliant. But then again, Man United, not, not so much, right? In the, in the heat, Natalie, did it feel like another game you may well have been at? Brazil-Germany in that first half? Because oh. that's kind of how it made me feel at home. What, just what was in, unfolding in front of us? Would you like some salt to put in that, in that wound, <laughs> It was an extraordinary meltdown. I mean, beginning with David De Gea on the, uh, on the opening goal, his Massimo Taibi moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it just it, it speaks of the complete lack of confidence that every player has. Um, I think people sometimes underestimate at the elite level the huge difference that tiny percentage points in performance makes. It doesn't take much for a goalkeeper to throw one in his net. It doesn't take much for a defender to be slightly unaware of where the ball is going to come to him and how it's going to come to him and where how close his opponent is behind him in the in the case of the second goal. Manchester United have seven or eight problem positions at the moment, but the goalkeeping position didn't really feel like one at the start of the season and now really does because, to my mind, the most important thing a Ten Hag goalkeeper can do is the distribution and that isn't De Gea's strongest point. It isn't Dean Henderson's strongest point either, although I think he's better at it than David De Gea. Um, But what we're used to seeing from De Gea is brilliant shot stopping and everything else being slightly less than the Allison edison elite and when the shot stopping goes he suddenly begins to look a very ordinary goalkeeper but i think it's uh also a domino effect because uh well when when you sign ten hag you know you're gonna be playing from the back and and they seem to lack trust in one another you know especially defending the Haya, playing the ball to erickson uh on on brent for second goal maguire was free like is he comfortable playing with maguire from behind because there is the fact that the hair doesn't is not necessarily comfortable playing with with the ball on his feet, but at the same time they don't trust each other and that makes everything worse. And against Brighton, the defense were the same. The lack of confidence. The first half from Man United was honestly the the, the worst I've seen Man United play in person. And one of the things that stro- struck me the most, being there at the ground and looking at the players and the body languages and the the reactions or the lack of reactions, actually. You look at the pitch and you see them moaning, but you don't see any spirit. No one screaming, uh, no one leading the team. Sometimes you see De Gea doing that, and that that was definitely not the case on, on that match. But what worried me more, and if I were a United fan, I would be worried about that, is that lack of of reaction, of spirit. And it was all flat. They were losing 4-0, and it was like... 
it was, I don't know, one nil, uh, no goals. It, it was shocking. Mm. Natalie, you, you, you talked about Brentford's press and certainly that had a major part to play in, in both the opening goals, winning the ball that led to De Gea's mistake and then Jensen robbing Eriksen. Uh, then you had uh, the third goal was Ben Mee, who somehow was taller, even falling over than Lissandro Martinez, managed to bundle that one away as Brentford continued to mount the pressure. But then how about the fourth goal? Charlie, how about the quality of Brentford's passing and finishing? on that fourth goal. Who hit the front with Ivan Tony. Now he looks for Mbomo. Mbomo, it's four! It's brilliant from Brentford! They are demolishing Manchester United! I mean, that pass from Ivan Tony, left-footed, half-volleyed, first-time pass, absolutely sensational. I think, you know, we'll do well to a better assist all season. Um, and I mean, it was an interesting goal because it came from what looked at first like a slightly hopeful long ball upfield. Um, but given the way Brentford played and how sort of carefully choreographed everything seems to be under Thomas Frank, it, it, it then looked pretty deliberate, especially the way it ended up so perfectly at Tony's, uh, at Tony's feet. But yeah, I mean, and, and it was taken so well as well, the touch across the defender, which basically... You know, he's he's either got to foul him and get sent off or let him go, and he lets him go. Um, and just yeah, a brilliant, brilliant goal. And they could have got more in the second half. I mean, it was it was staggering uh, watching that back. Just the, the, the I mean, I know they keep raising the bar for ineptitude, but and where you know where does it go from here? Is that the peak, or you mm. know, can they outdo themselves again? Man United doom and despair section coming up very, very shortly. I want to just appreciate Brentford a little bit more first. Also, their free kick routine, something tremendously thrilling about seeing them lurk there with intent and then splitting up. A little bit like, say, Ocean's Eleven, you know, just before the heist to <laughs> occupy their, their roles. And uh, yes. Yeah, but this is this is what Brentford do. They, they you know, they, they focus on the minutiae because they have... Uh, a strategy or a kind of an ethos that runs right through the club which means that most things are givens they take care of themselves they don't really have to sweat that big stuff because you know, that, that's always there which gives them time and gives them resources to invest in the minutiae and part of that minutiae is, is their set piece coach who works across the summer to work on routines to mix things up that they believe can can give Brentford's the, those marginal gains they didn't need those marginal gains against Manchester United they were you know that but the, but they will make a difference in later season it's not just the attacking set pieces as well it's that I think we at the moment we really focus on the attacking set pieces because that's where you can really see it happening but it's also the the defensive work as well they're really good at defending set pieces and um, this is how non-financially elite clubs thrive in the Premier League and you know all powers them for that and I guess the flip side is when you don't focus on the marginal gains or those sorts of things as United don't seem to have done especially well over the last few years that helps bridge the gap as well and I do wonder as well with things like set pieces how we quite often see at the starts of season of new routines and patterns develop um, so it's kind of a particularly potent I remember last season on the opening day they scored with a long throw and I don't remember them then scoring loads of goals with long throws as the season wore on. I guess there's an extent to which teams wise up to it. But yeah, certainly at this stage, we do get these new things coming in and teams don't really know how to deal with it. Certainly United looked pretty clueless uh, against them on Saturday. Natalie, what, what else do you want to say about Brentford? There was another goal for the Silver. Great home debuts for Aaron Hickey smashing into Ronaldo in what felt like a symbolic moment. Ben Mee, of course, with the, the third goal. Yeah, I think uh, the, the first two goals were were very, especially it was were very symbolic from from Man United. So it's it's easier to to speak uh, about Man United and and not Brentford. But the, the the way they managed to just keep on top of their game and and they were very composed uh, the whole time. And and Thomas Frank, he's he's such an interesting character. Every time I cover a, a, a Brentford match, I'm just fascinated by him, and I'm fascinated by by the way he interacts at at the pitch side uh, on pitch side, and 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 he's always talking to his players. And even though he has this very hectic uh, personality uh, and and almost chaotic, 
it's not chaotic. Uh, it's it's very clear what what uh, what what he's trying, the, the message he's trying to get across. And on post match, he was actually very proud of of the progress they've been making. If we consider that they were a handful for for the big six teams many times last season, so so it's 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 a brand for project. You can see it happening, and and this is very interesting to follow. That that is such a good point because I remember being at Brentford in April when they played Spurs and they drew 0-0 and could eat Brentford really should have won that game and again they caused Spurs so many problems with set pieces there was this period in the first half where they put in about four where Spurs just didn't look like they knew what to do and I remember Frank that day talking about how disappointed he was they hadn't won and again just hearing him speak afterwards he, he is so impressive the way he, he he's so passionate and enthusiastic but as Natalie says clearly so thoughtful to go with that so I, I do wonder um Obviously, this is it's so annoying for, for supporters of clubs when you talk in this way. But I do wonder, I'd be very curious to know what his next job will be after Brentford. Mm. Mm. I, w- I, would, I would buy a, a used car from from, from, from <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Natalie. He's very convincing about everything. He can sell me anything. It's fine. <laughs> That's his next job, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so other people who might be looking for a new job soon include United's manager, of course, after that performance. Jessica Hayden tweeting, if you're wondering why Manchester United are wearing fluorescent kit, it's because the Glazers asked Ten Hag to highlight United's problem areas. <laughs> Grace hmm. Robertson, uh, Frinky de Jong watching this and agreeing to a pay cut. It was an extraordinary <laughs> first 45 minutes. It felt rather unheard of, but of course it's nothing new. If you check the numbers, that's seven straight away defeats for United. It's the seventh time as well that they've conceded at least four goals in the Premier League since the start of last season, which is, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a the, lot. I mean, the, the good news is they haven't been trailing 4-0 at half-time since last October when they played Liverpool at home. That The bad news is they do play Liverpool at home yeah. next Monday. So, um, yeah, they, it doesn't always go like that. But it, Manchester United seem to be in that still in that zone where we think, well, at some point they're going to give someone a game and they're going to improve, but surely that's not going to be against Liverpool. Well, there's a there's a great piece running at the moment over at the Athletic on the fallout Man United, the the running, the strained relations, Ten Hag's position on Ronaldo, all that kind of thing. Of course, things will undoubtedly improve when Adrian Rabiot gets signed. How could it could it not? But just briefly, what what do you think does happen next with Liverpool, who beat them what nine nil across the two fixtures last season? Yeah, I think the question is how low can they go? Because uh, what's next for Man United? Uh, Obviously Liverpool, but but how are they going to react? Because Ten Hag was very was very clear on on saying that uh, the players should take responsibility as well. And it's easy for us to talk about the Glazers, which is pretty obvious, and it was the main the main complaint from Man United fans who were at the ground and talk about the lack of recruitment. And everybody knows that they need a central midfielder, a defensive midfielder. Fred was clearly very exposed uh, playing in that system without any other uh, defensive midfielders. Uh, But at the same time, it is uh, a question of of attitude as well. They've been doing a preseason where they were showing signs of progress. Mm. Uh, Ten Hag was was getting his ideas across. And and it is a, a, a process because uh, his his philosophy in football is 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 very clear and it's different from what Man United's been playing. But that's what they 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 wanted when they when they recruited Ten Hag and, and the players they they need to show more answers and they just they they look absolutely lost against Brentford. And two questions about that. One, was there anybody who was missing in preseason? Was there any difference to the formation between the United that we were seeing in preseason when they were pressing and the one that was uh, in Brentford? <laughs> the other, the other question I had was uh, re- regarding Ten Hag's comments afterwards, where he says, "You know, we worked all this time, but you can't have a good tactical plan, and then it gets torn up and thrown in the bin by the players." Is the assumption was it their idea to play Ericsson as a defensive midfielder, for example? No, oh, yeah, that that that. Is a bizarre, you know, Ericsson playing as a false nine in the first game and then a mm. defensive midfielder in the second. Doesn't it doesn't suggest that this system that they're working to is necessarily set in stone, or or, or probably that Ten Hag feels like he's got the players in the right positions to do it. I think Ronaldo is is massive. You know, 
I know we get these leaks out of pre-season when under new managers about the improvement, but every single Man United player was talking about that the greater discipline in the squad that Ten Hag wanted to instill. And then you get a player coming back who is kind of wantonly flouting that discipline culture, is made no secret of his desire to leave. And Manchester United, because of the mess they've created over the last X number of years or months, don't have anyone else to play there when Anthony Martial is injured. And and to repeat a point I said on the, the preview pod, Anthony Martial has scored two league goals in the last 18 months. He's also not the answer, but he might at least work for the team, which is a start. They need to get rid of Ronaldo as soon as possible. It's easy to see how the mood in the squad could shift without him being there because he's just toxic at the moment. Yeah, I don't know how much it's them having to give off the impression that they don't want to get rid of him, you know, because of potential buyers or whatever. But from an outsider's point of view, it just seems utterly mad uh, that you would want to keep him. I just cannot see... I mean, I know, obviously, he scores goals and, you know, you can make the argument where would they have been without his goals last season. But if you're trying to, you know, rebuild something and actually, you know, tear up the culture and start again, I just can't see how someone like Ten Hag can really have a mandate if he is still, you know, someone like Cristiano Ronaldo is still there. I just, I don't think you can try and build something and be sincere about that if you're still enthralled to someone who is so clearly from your past rather than your future and barely even your present. Mm, Well, Liverpool next for Man United. So no doubt an opportunity to delve further into their... uh into their mysteries next week. Next up on this show, though, let's have a chat about teams that are vying for this year's top four with Arsenal and Chelsea and Spurs. Hello, I'm Ian Irving, host of the Athletics Manchester United podcast, Talk of the Devils. Join me, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker every week, but particularly this week, as we gear up to the huge Liverpool game at Old Trafford on Monday night. We'll preview that match without paying any reference to our meeting with our rivals from last season, of course, and we'll also assess the latest twists and turns in Manchester United's roller coaster of a summer transfer window. You won't get better insight on United anywhere else, and as you'll find, you won't get better cocktails chat either. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Totally Football Show European Edition is out Tuesday lunchtime, and there is a lot to discuss with all the big European leagues back underway now. You've got Milan's winning start. You've got the Mbappe meltdown in Paris. Extraordinary stuff. Mbappe uh, abandoning a, a counter-attack by his team, and now... Apparently, uh, waging war on Neymar. Those are the stories we'll ask Julian Laurent about all of that. Uh, we'll also talk to Rafa about Timo Werner. The ball bleibt in Leipziger rein und da ist links mein Platz. Jetzt hat Werner den Ball. Zieht er mal ab. Werner macht's mal aus der Ferne. Never in doubt. Only took him 36 minutes back at Leipzig 
to net once again with a little bit of De Gea-esque assistance from the opposition goalkeeper. Lovely stuff. Anyway, all that coming up on Tuesday. Natalie, though, speaking of former Chelsea players elsewhere, what was happened to William at Corinthians? Yeah, that, that didn't go so well, to say the least. Well, uh, William uh, asked to, to leave Corinthians. It was his, his childhood cl- club, so, so he came back to Brazil. High hopes, high wages as well, because he earned it. He, he had a brilliant career in Europe, so it's only natural. But the fans don't see it that way. Uh, William hasn't been doing really well uh, in Corinthians. He had a couple of injuries, that's true, and that definitely got in his way. But it was uh, 45 matches, just one goal. And then he started to get uh, death threats from, from fans, him and his family. So this was the main reason why he left Corinthians and he made it very clear. And now he's uh, aiming for a return to Europe. There were a few rumors involving Fulham, but nothing uh, nothing settled. But it, it, it didn't go uh, as as everyone thought thought it would, definitely. Mm, it's quite that, a thought. That would be a, a wonderfully throwback Fulham signing, by the way. I mean... Remember in 2018-19, they signed Lazar Markovic, Ryan Babel and Andre Schirler <laughs> in the same season. William would be an absolutely superb addition to that. Brilliant stuff. All right, top four race then. Uh, Arsenal 4-2 winners against Leicester, while Chelsea and Spurs had that 2-2 scrap at Stamford Bridge. Charlie and Natalie, you were both there. Natalie, we've described how you were right. You had a ringside seat. For the post-game scenes, Charlie, I imagine you were not far away. Man United boardroom, not the only place with lots of hand-wringing, is my, my note on, on this. <laughs> there is a territorial element to it. Tuchel sort of prowls around his technical area. Uh, he's a big guy and, you know, he's very demonstrative, even more so than Conte, actually, uh, who at times looked fairly subdued in comparison. You know, Tuchel's screaming at the players, screaming at himself in frustration, turning towards the fans. There's almost a slight performative element to it. But anyway, when, you know, when Chelsea conceded that equaliser and they felt there was a foul in the build-up, when Hoybier scored, it all sort of kicked off then. And then Tuchel did his sort of Mourinho at Old Trafford 2004 impression and charged down the touchline. Conte didn't see him, I don't think, but then tweeted or uh, took to Instagram, to use the the, the right terminology, uh, today. To, I mean, it wasn't really what he was saying, but he was basically saying, like, lucky I didn't see you, fella, because, you know, I would have laid you out. It seemed to be the he implication. He said I, I w- it would have been easy to trip you up. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it was it was, it was was fairly cryptic, another sort of Instagram buzzword. But anyway, yeah, the implication was, uh, yeah. I mean, there were three laughing emojis as well, so all in good spirits. But, yeah, then it, 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 it kicked off at the... Um, the final whistle. It was a great right. handshake. I mean, it was it was one for the ages. Um, and you could see it coming because Conte walked over to him in that way that one does of like, I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to shake mm. your hand because I have to, but I really don't like you and I'm really pissed off with you, which Tuchel obviously picked up on. And mm. uh, yeah, sort of Mark... I mean, Mark Hughes was sort of the, the master of the Premier League handshake controversy and it felt a sort of... felt like one he'd have been proud of. Uh, but it was very entertaining to watch. Behind Tuchel's uh, anger was the 96th-minute equaliser from Spurs, resulting from a corner which Tuchel felt shouldn't have been given because in the build-up, Christian Romero had very, very visibly grabbed the hair uh, grabbed the hair of Mark Kukurea. Uh, Simon Langland asking, is it possible that Mike Dean and Anthony Taylor's hairlessness clouded their judgment <laughs> on that incident? It just reminded me of the glorious Louis van Gaal quote about Shakshmashikism, uh, when he said, You cannot do that to a player, and sort of challenged the reporter, said, Would you like it if I pulled your hair? Which was superb. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it certainly happened. It was very obvious. I don't think it would have changed the decision for a corner because the ball wasn't in play. So he could have sent off Romero, but you wouldn't have given a free kick. It would have just been a, a piece of violent conduct and then carry on. As a, as a relative, well, as a complete neutral watching this game, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic fair. It was kind of peak Barclays. It was so early in the season for for this amount of edge. That's what really caught me off guard. I mean, I know these two teams don't like each other. I know they will probably be competing for a top four place together. I know they have history. But the amount of edge and snideness and nastiness was absolutely glorious. And, And as Charlie and Natalie said, simmering from basically minute one onwards. Thomas Tuchel at the end said only one team deserved to win. That was... 
Us. A magnificent debut goal from uh, Kulabali to get things underway. About, about the atmosphere, when, when you see players trying to break up a, a fa a, a, an argument between two managers, you just, <laughs> you, just you, you can't get your head across it. And, and the, the, the Thomas Tuchel's sprint on, on Chelsea's second goal was just, it was sublime, him sprinting in front of, of Antonio Conte. And in the end, uh, they, they both seemed to, to, to get a, a little laugh from all of it uh, on the press conferences and, and the way they spoke about it. But overall, uh, as you mentioned, James, it was a great match and, and the tactical battle was fascinating to watch behind the dugouts because, uh, especially on the second half, because when Richarlison comes in, it changes the setup from Spurs and, and Tuchel uh, starts showing like five fingers in his hand and the players know and Conte is communicating with his players as well. And I spoke to Emerson Royale and Thiago Silva after the match and they both said exactly the same things, that they've been warned and trained for the possibility of these changes during the match because they studied last last season's matches so that shows the level of detail both managers have preparing a match like this because when everything was happening it was just a gesture from Tuchel and a gesture from Conte to gather around the players and they all really already know what they were doing and when Tuchel says that uh, only one team deserved to win and that was Chelsea uh, if you look at the display especially on first half I, you can agree with him because uh, Chelsea was uh, uh, outstanding in the way they were pressing and the chances they were creating. Second half, again, uh, Spurs had more more players uh, in the final third and for like 10, 15 minutes, they, they created some, some dangerous situations, but I didn't see uh, Chelsea losing it uh, at any point during, uh, during the match. Charlie, after Spurs' recent performances there at the bridge, this must have felt a little bit like, like a victory. How were they able to, to snatch a point at the death? Well, I think one of the big things when you contrast to the three defeats Conte Spurs suffered to Chelsea in January, one of the big issues there, they didn't... I mean, the, team, the starting team was far better on this day, but also they had so little off the bench. And if you look at those games... Conte was hopefully chucking on Brian Hill, who was about to be loaned out. In the first game, Lacelso and Dombele came out, came on right at the end of their Spurs careers. This time, he was able to bring on Richarlison before the hour mark, which, as Natalie says, was able to then completely change things, give them a huge injection of energy. I mean, he came on and was charging down defenders, just being a pest, and really gave them a lift. They could obviously bring on Basuma and, and Perisic, who made a big difference. I mean, he took the corner for Kane's equalising goal. I took corners with both feet, which is one of the most impressive things um, a player can do, in, in in my view. Son also took one, a free kick with his with his weaker foot. Um, but just having that quality off the bench is something that Conte has talked about at length. He's often brought up the fact that, you know, he's last season, he's said to have said to his coaches, you know, I look to the bench, I look back to the pitch. Basically, you know, <laughs> just not having anything, not, not having any options. And so obviously this summer... I think some Spurs fans have looked at it and been like, well, we're two games in and none of our signings have started a game. But I think, A, they're being eased in. But B, even if they're not starting it, just having such stronger options off the bench with five subs to make as well, I think that was how they were able to do it. You know, and also they did benefit from, you know, they got the rub of the green with the refereeing decisions. I mean, I wonder as well if this game will be the first time that, you know, the players might be fined for failing to control their managers because it was, you know, <laughs> it, it was, it very much had that vibe at the end of all of, it was kind of like when dads come to blows, you know, coaching the two football teams or the players have to be the grown up ones. They were sort of holding them back. But yeah, I, I think Spurs just had, you know, both, both mentally as well. They are more resilient now. But prosaically, it is just about having that quality to bring on. You know, the mm. teams like Chelsea, City, Liverpool, they can do this. Um, but Spurs, you know, just a word, since those that hat-trick of defeats, they've gone to City and won. They've gone to Liverpool and drawn a game they could easily have won. And now they've drawn with Chelsea. So that's the three teams above them last season, all away from home, and they haven't lost, which is pretty big progress for a team that we often think of as being uh, sort of weak in these bigger matches. Mm. There's a word for that, isn't there? Mm. Anyway, meanwhile, the Gunners, who are with Manchester City, the only side so far to be two for two, four two winners on Saturday against Leicester. Ooh, Gabriel Jesus, two goals, two assists. Ooh, and Martinelli as well. Another goal. Arsenal doing wonders for the Celestial, no? 
Yes, definitely. We're very pleased about it. Well, G Gabriel's first goal, Gabriel Jesus' first goal was, was outstanding. You can see clearly how he's a striker uh, with a lot of freedom to move, actually. And, and for a very long time, we thought that he could only deliver in a very high level playing as a right winger because he made it clear that it was the area of the pitch where he felt more comfortable. But with Arsenal's setup and, and the way they move, I think it really benefits him. And, and plus, that there are players who do better with rotation. And, and I'm not sure that that's the case for Gabriel Jesus because he really benefits from feeling that, that confidence of starting a lot of matches and it's great news for Titi because uh, Titi the, the manager from, from, the, from the Brazilian team because the only players who got more caps for the national team under Titi were Alisson, Thiago Silva and Marquinhos and Titi was very criticized a few times for calling Gabriel Jesus so it's really good news and, and he showed a lot of ambition uh, one thing that caught my attention from Gabriel Jesus is that during halftime he asked for the coaching staff to show him the chances that he missed and and that's really important because we can't forget that in Russia he was really really criticized for being Brazil's number nine and not scoring a goal the entire tournament. So you can see the change of mentality and and you can see things change things changing for him. And I mean, for, from an Arsenal point of view, what an unbelievable improvement he is. I mean, I was thinking about this, and Arsenal strikers have been. They've had very obvious strengths, but very obvious weaknesses as well. I mean, they had Lacazette and Aubameyang for a long time. And Lacazette could link play really well, but couldn't really move. Aubameyang was a good penalty box striker, but his link play wasn't very good. And suddenly you've got Gabriel Jesus. And obviously before that, Giroud, who is a very much has his strengths, but obviously has obvious limitations as well. Gabriel Jesus has come in and just looks like such an all-rounder. I mean, he's... He looks lethal in front of goal, certainly did in pre-season and then was able to do that again on the weekend. And the way he's linking play, he's also, David Ornstein reports today, been given a sort of leadership role in the group. He's like a, one of two vice captains and clearly, you know, the players really look up to him. You can see, I mean, Natty with Martinelli as well, they seem to have this connection and Martinelli's game seems to have been lifted since Jesus came in. Um, I mean, that, that was one of those signings that instantly felt really smart for both parties and certainly it's played out that way so far yep two for two for Arsenal Leicester after the disappointment of their draw last weekend with another setback and some signs that could have been Wesley Fofana's last appearance for the Foxes reports are that he's agreed terms with Chelsea another player apparently heading to Stamford Bridge is the aforementioned Aubameyang is that going to happen? Can you see it working out? Question mark, question mark. It's kind of, it doesn't feel like joined up thinking because we're also told they've made an offer of £40 million for Anthony Gordon of Everton, another wide player and a, a very young wide player, which, which would suggest that, that Tuchel is kind of all in on this Chelsea ruin centre-forward, so why don't we just try and not play with one and see if that works? And it might well work. So, I mean, maybe maybe Aubameyang could come in as a sort of, you know, an emergency option as a substitute to change things up or if that stops working to play up front. But we've got some very recent evidence of him struggling in the Premier League to do exactly what Charlie was talking about earlier. And it would feel like a slightly backward step. It would also feel like really helping out the club who have pipped them to pretty much every signing they wanted for the first two months of the transfer window, which would be a slightly odd PR move. I was just going to say very quickly on Arsenal, I, I feel like they're a little bit where, to make a tennis comparison, where Andy Murray was for a lot of his career and that he was very, very good, but unfortunately had these big, big beasts in front of him. And I feel with Arsenal, they could have a really good season, like they, you know, like they did for much of last season, but still come fifth because... They're competing with three teams who, all of whom have been in the Champions League final in the last two seasons and all have three of the best managers in Europe. They've then got Spurs. Conte's probably in that group of best managers. So I just think it's a, it's it's so ferociously competitive up at that level that they, I think it can be both possible that they could play very well this season and pick up a lot of good results and still finish outside that top four. Arsenal still Scottish. Will they become British? <laughs> I think the other... The other thing to say on that point is those elite club owners are hugely looking forward to the Champions League changes that will come in in mm. 2024 to allow, probably to allow five English teams into the Champions League, assuming we, we perform in Europe as as we have over the last few. That is a huge weight off their minds because 
if Manchester United are not going to come back to that level, it does now feel already this season that there's a very natural top five. Indeed so. All right, well, uh, it's going to be a fascinating race, etc. And so on. Next up, though, Days of History. If you're into your tactics and football analytics and you're looking for a deeper understanding of the game, you can join me, Ali Maxwell, along with Michael Cox and the rest of the Athletics data team for our Football Tactics podcast. Find new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Monday the 15th of August, everybody. On this day, three decades back, the day that changed English football forever and had a huge impact on football the world over. Yep, Neil Warnock had his first match as an English league manager. But on Tish. Scarborough taking on Wolves. Back then, 1987, it was uh, Neil going on to manage over 1,600 games, winning some of them. He's now retired, age 73, but uh, can be enjoyed on Twitter. Look out for him. Also on the 15th of August, I note uh, a few years later, a few of the uh, big rich clubs decided to ditch their league and set up their own breakaway competition. Sounds familiar. Uh, the Premier League, as it was known, uh, which came into being 30 years ago. Or is it 31 now? We had an argument about this the other day. It's 30, <laughs> 30 isn't Still it? 30, yeah, yeah. Still, Still 30. Still 30, OK. Anyway, I, I had a bit of a chat with Mr Premier League Alan Shearer, all-time top scorer in the division, to kind of commemorate this milestone and that. Uh, and uh, very nice he was too. You can hear the audio from that out on the uh, Totally Football Show uh, kind of podcast feed at the moment. Or there is also a full Technicolor version as well to be enjoyed. Excellent. Daniel, uh, speaking of days of history, how about Sunday at the City Ground for Forrest's first game back in the Premier League in 23 years? Uh, was it everything you dreamed of? As an occasion, yes, absolutely. Uh, as a match... Yes, pretty much, because if Forest have that amount of good fortune in every game this season, they will be absolutely fine in terms of relegation. I mean, West Ham, for those who didn't see the game, had a penalty saved, hit the underside of the bar and down onto the line twice, which I think is the first time I've seen that happen more than once in the same game. Dean Henderson made a brilliant follow-up save. There was a slightly controversial goal disallowed. I was quite surprised it was overturned, although... One of the replays does kind of look like Michael Antonio steps in the way of the defender to sort of push him over. Uh, and Forrest took their chance. Uh, they were fuelled by the best atmosphere I've ever seen at the city ground, which is perhaps no surprise given the kind of magnitude of the occasion. But um, Steve Cooper spoke after the game to sort of point out that he'd, he'd spoken to the ticket office and that the applications for the game meant Forrest could have sold 130,000 tickets for the game. That was the kind of appetite for it city ground was packed the, the kind of west bridge of the surrounding areas was was kind of thronging with people who weren't going to the game but wearing shirts to kind of create that atmosphere it was it was absolutely joyous and um forest were fortunate to win but they did also have eight new signings in the team and and mm. that's going to be the kind of defining question of of forest season is how quickly can you knit it all together Forrest, very much the Barcelona of the, of the Midlands <laughs> at the moment. I read the, there's more signings on the way. Uh, Manuel Denis from yes, Watford. Neil Mope, Remo Freuler, we talked about last week. That's Lissam done. Awar. <laughs> that's Any possible. others? Uh, James Garner from, is being made available from Manchester United, so that could happen. It does feel, yeah, that they did need to buy a lot of players. And Steve Cooper saying, look, I make no apologies for that. We did. And if you look at the bench yesterday... You know, without being harsh on those players, there's players there who didn't get in the team in the Championship last season uh, and are now on the bench in the Premier League because of the sheer number of players that have left. So they did need to do that business. Um, they looked pretty tired towards the end and defended for their lives. But I thought it was amazing how coherent they did look, given the number of changes. On El Mangala and, and Lewis O'Brien is a, a central midfield combination that I think have only had four training sessions together, were so effective in shutting down Declan Rice's runs forward. That's a hugely promising sign. It's it's so funny this early season. Last weekend, we were kind of told that Lewis O'Brien really struggled in the Premier League. And I think I heard yesterday after the game that the Sky commentators were talking about him from an England call-up. So that's how weird it's going to feel at Forest at the moment because there's going to be huge lurches in performances. Everyone 
almost literally learns each other's names. Uh, and yes, as you say, Remo Freuler was announced last night. Emmanuel oh, Dennis was announced. Was announced. Now. Yeah, mm. Dennis was announced on Friday night. Um, there's talk of Neil Mopé. There is talk of Hassem Awar, although I'd be surprised if that one happened. James Garner, I think, is a more solid link because Steve Cooper would like to have some players he, he remembers from last season. But yes, they will keep on wheeling and keep on dealing, I think. They could sell the ground out four times over and they could fill their squad list, probably. <laughs> it's similar. quite funny. There was a number of journalists yesterday who were slightly aggrieved that they'd not been given a car parking space for the game. And you think, well, if all the players and all the agents need to get in there, then there's simply only going to be three or four spaces left. <laughs> so fair play. Mm, all right. A word on West Ham, an XG of 2.5 for the Hammers. But they're still yet to score this season. They looked really leggy and they also looked like... They could really do with a creative central midfielder. You can see why they're in for Amadou Onana um, because Declan Rice feels like he's having to do about four or five different jobs, you know, protect the defence, distribute from where he is and then also kind of drive forward to supply the front line. I thought Saeed Benrahma was brilliant yesterday and he, he he's had a bit of a sticky patch so it'd be good if he comes through but they're lacking something in the middle and I think David Moyes is going to have to kind of knock on doors this week to try and get a couple of new signings in. I mean, they have been punching above their weight, haven't they, for the last couple of seasons, really? And you you do feel Moyes has more than earned, you know, the injection of some new blood because they have been carried a lot of the time. Rice, as Daniel mentions, and other players as well, like Antonio, who've done so much for that team. So it, it feels like they're sort of that the cycle of that team, maybe, or certainly that team being able to, you know, be in the be in the European places, which it has been the last two seasons, which is an amazing achievement. Whether it can keep doing that feels questionable. Though they were just unbelievably unlucky yesterday. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're taking on Danish side Viborg, possibly Viborg, uh, seventh place finishers in the Danish Superliga last season. Uh, that game coming up on Thursday in the Europa Conference League playoff round. First leg, that is. Uh, first leg, meanwhile, of the Champions League group stage playoff on Tuesday which sees Rangers hosting PSV. Rangers who survived that massive scare in the last round after going 2-0 down in their first leg against Union Saint-Gilloise. They roared back for a 3-0 win at Ibrox, where they have such an incredible record, you recall, last season. It's going to be quite an interesting game this to see. Can they make a Champions League group for the first time in over a decade? And have two Scottish teams in the group stage for the first time in a long time, which I think would be would be great. Uh, they face a huge step up. I mean, they survived by the skin of their teeth against saint Joas, so this will be a big step up. There's no doubt about that. Mm, PSV, who put Monaco out in the uh, previous round. That game coming up on Tuesday night then. Uh, rest of the Premier League, a word for the early leaders at Manchester City and their 4-0 win over Bournemouth. That fixture remains the most one-sided one in Premier League history. That's 11 wins out of 11 for City now. A lot of attention on Erling Haaland's statistics for this game, which won't take long to list. Eight touches in 74 minutes, only two passes. One was a kickoff, and the other, the assist for Ilkay Gundogan's opener, which is nice. Yeah, Pep, uh, after the match, said that to be a striker playing against a team like Bournemouth, who has uh, three defenders plus two midfielders in front, it's very hard for a striker and it's actually a matter of time for Holland to adjust and have the right timing for the right movements. And that actually makes a lot of sense. I know the, the, the stats make make a, a good headline, but, but it, it makes sense. And in the end, Foden missed a chance and he could have passed to Holland. And Pep said he needs to pass that ball because Holland is always going to be there. So it's it's going to take some time to, to, to adjust a few things. Uh, but because it, it is Holland and he made such a huge impact uh, right in the in the first match, of course the expectations are very high and everything is going to be a headline uh, around him. And a quick note on, on Kevin De Bruyne: ninety eight percent of completed passes plus a beautiful goal. So it's insane, really. Mm. That goal was oh, yeah, wow. What was your favourite goal this weekend? Was it that? Was the uh, was it the Mbuma goal uh, at, at Brentford? Was it Danny Ings's lovely uh, turn and, and and lashed in shot against Everton? Even Koulibaly's goal. Koulibaly's really nice. was fantastic yeah. too. Yeah, so clean. 
Mm. But I, I, st- I, I vote uh, Kevin De Bruyne. Oh, yeah? Yes, yes. No, it was brilliant. You do, you do see Pep's point in that goal because I think at least two central defenders and one midfielder track Haaland as he makes that run into the box for the presumed pass. And, I mean, De Bruyne is of an unbelievable level where he can just sort of outside of the foot curl into the bottom corner. But that run does take away three players and that will happen. There will be times where Haaland creates goals by not touching the ball. And on Bournemouth as well, I mean, Dominic Solanke being out, obviously big for them. And you think, I mean, I don't know how significant that injury is, but you really feel they need him fit and available or they, you know, they could be in trouble. Indeed so. What's uh, what's your view on Aston Villa's 2-1 win over Everton? As I mentioned, a lovely goal from Danny Ings to open up the scoring. Villa then taking a two-goal lead after Emi Buendia came on and scored with Everton's late consolation coming through a Luca Dean own goal, which must have had a certain sweetness for the Toffees. Uh, my question about this game, does Steve Gerrard use the same deodorant as Prince Andrew? <laughs> But maybe that's on a question, more. James. That's my question. A backup follow-up questions included: How crucial was bringing Tyrone Mings back? How important was it to give Wundia a place on the field? And does this mean the end for the Coutinho experiment, etc. and so on? But I'd go with the deodorant. It's up to you. Whatever you want. <laughs> I know. On quickly on Mings, we should say that Villa have announced this morning that Diego Carlos has suffered an Achille- ruptured Achilles. And we'll be out, We get, you guess, normally for around six months with that sort of injury. So firstly, Gerard is probably going to have to pick the Mings-Konza combination in the short term that he'd effectively decided wasn't good enough. And secondly, I suspect Villa will change transfer plans to sign a central defender as a matter of urgency because it's one of those injuries that if you are back before the end of the season, it's it's sort of a bonus, really. I mean, the other thing, I mean, Buendia, I know a lot of um, people associated with Villa, and I think uh, my colleague Greg Evans wrote a piece on this, a surprise that he doesn't play. He's been in and out of the team, and then he comes on and he does make a big difference. So it'll be interesting to see now whether he keeps his place. Because there was a game, I think, last season where he played really well and then was out of the team again the following week. And obviously there is that competition with Coutinho. So that is a big call that, that Gerard has to make. Or he maybe just keeps on rotating them. And on Everton... Uh, they did not have a shot on target on first half, apart from Gordon's goal that was ruled out from from the VAR, and they don't look inspired at all. Um, we had Cody's uh, debut for Everton, and of course Tarkovsky was signed during the summer, and they lost Ben Godfrey and they lost Mina on the opening match of the season, and now Ducouré also got injured. And still the area that worries more is attack, because most uh, most of the time they, they, they thought they... They lost both of their matches. They look aware and, and reasonably organized in defense, uh, especially because they had to defend so hard at the end of the season. And you still see some of that resilience defending that they, they inherited from those final rounds. But with Richarlison, he was really making a lot happening up front and covered Lewin's going to be out for a while. So they desperately need to sign a player from this area of the pitch or find different ways to attack because it doesn't look inspiring at all for Everton in the final third. Very quickly, I'm surprised that they loaned out Ellis Sims to the championship when they did. I mean, I'm not saying he's he's definitively Premier League level yet, although he scored three and three for Sunderland and tops the goal-scoring charts in the championship. But when you know that Salomon Rondon was suspended for the start of the season, it seems an extraordinary decision to loan out a player, your only other fit player in that position, with still like three or four weeks of the transfer window left. Mm-hmm. Problems then for Frank Lampard and Everton. A much-needed win for Villa. The other games this weekend... Battling stuff from Saints as they came back from two goals down at home to Leeds. No goals whatsoever for Brighton and Newcastle. And also goalless the game between Wolves and Fulham. What's worth picking out of those those games? I mean, Southampton is the classic. Well, if the managers lost the dressing room, it certainly didn't look like that the way they fought back in the last 20 minutes. I mean, that was a kind of, you know... That, that, that was a spirited fight back. And I do think Southampton are, you know, I think they are a lot of people's, you worry about them team. And maybe justifiably so, but they've got some quite exciting young attacking players. And you just wonder, that could massively go one of two ways. You know, they might be, they might lack experience and 
proven Premier League pedigree, or it could come together quite nicely. Um, but that was a spirited comeback because I think had they lost that game, then you know off the back of stories that some of the players thought Hassan Hutter was going to be sacked this summer, that then you read the pressure really would have ramped up on him. So um, yeah, we'll see where that goes. That's their first point in six matches. Leeds, meanwhile, seeing their new skipper Patrick Bamford off injured again. Natalie. Yeah, but the good news is that Rodrigo is scoring. Uh, so he has three goals in two games. Mm. And it seems like he's he's settling in better with Jesse Marsh because he, he didn't get as many opportunities with Marcelo Bielsa. He, he, it's true that he had an injury in the first half of the season, last season. But after that, he got some game time with him and, and things just weren't happening, you know. And he's he's been playing more consistently with Marsh. He got more starts. He scored three goals. But then Leeds was in such a big mess last season that maybe not now we'll be able to really see more of him and really see uh, Rod- Rodrigo's quality. Very nice. Brighton nil, Newcastle nil. Nick Pope, the answer to everything, including which is better, tomato or gherkin? Mm. Mm. I mean, a, a strong week for corporate banter, wasn't it, last week on, on Twitter? Right now. I mean, he, 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 he was the game's best player against Brighton. I, the, the one thing I thought from that game is just... I know we, we have the same old issue with Brighton and not finishing their chances, but just how complete they still look given that they sold two of their best players in the summer. Mm. And there were barely any new signings in that team. I don't, in fact, I don't think there were any new signings in that team. So Dennis Undav is still on the bench, not didn't come on at the weekend, but it's just incredible how you can kind of play Jenga with this Brighton side by <laughs> taking out various pieces and yet it still remains absolutely rock solid. Dangerous game though. Dangerous. I did think that last week, Daniel, as well, in the United game, even seeing the the score sheet, and you think some of these players, I, I you know, I thought they'd left. I thought they'd sort of moved on in their evolution, but they're still there and still playing well. And it was interesting. I was talking to someone yesterday about it, because with Brighton, I've always made the assumption, I think, you know, if they could just go out and get a striker, they'd solve all their problems. But, you know, it is an active choice by Potter. I know they play well back, but, you know, they've often played without a conventional striker and that's really important to the way they play you know they have to have someone who you know you mentioned before with someone like Aubameyang like that would not really be how someone like Brighton would want to play they want to play with this very fluid flexible style and you pay for that I guess a little bit you don't have um, someone who can finish these chances but you also might not have such a coherent fluid attacking style of play that that Brighton do still have and that's how they're able to create so many chances even if they don't always and maybe often put them away Last week, I spoke to to Graham Potter after the the United match, and he was very clear that's how the club operates. They sell players if they have good offers uh, and and very confident about the the, the Brighton project. And you see these rumors uh, on Mopai and and the, the possibility of him leaving. And I don't think fans should necessarily be panicking about it because they have such a clear way of playing and and such a clear structure that it seems like players important players are leaving and they they don't let the ball drop you know you see it would be important for them to sign someone to replace Mopai of course but I don't see Brighton season going south necessarily if if that doesn't happen Hmm. okay Wolves uh, nil Fulham nil although Alexander Mitrovic had the chance to give the Cottages a win from the penalty spot nine minutes ago. Didn't work out. There'll be other chances, Alexander. Uh, good. There you go. Still one game to go from round two, and it is Liverpool against Crystal Palace Monday night. Uh, we'll talk about that on Thursday. Before that, as I mentioned, on Tuesday, it'll be Rafa and Julian Alvaro and James discussing all the latest events this weekend in Europe. What are you up to this week, Natalie? Oh my God, what am I up to this week? So mm. Spurs Wolves on oh, Saturday yeah. Yeah. and on Sunday Newcastle City and on Monday, the following Monday, the the match, uh, United-Liverpool. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. Charlie, what, what have you got up on the athletic at the moment? Wow. Um, <laughs> God, um, well, the next thing on my agenda is Spurs Wolves on Saturday. Right. So Have you got anything for people to, to read if, if they've enjoyed your words here today? Yeah, there's a piece went up this morning actually on... Um, there's lots of stuff on uh, Chelsea Spurs, but for me, did a piece on kind of Conte's reaction to Tuchel, how he stood up to him, and how Spurs have started 
standing up to the bigger teams in these games and mm. stop being pushed around. I see. Oh, and I and I also had an interview with Diego Carlos that uh, Daniel oh, just r- ruled. Sorry. Yes, oh, no. I mean I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> lay all the blame at my feet. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> Thank so, you for that. Daniel. <laughs> what are you going to do with that, Natalie? No, it, it was scheduled, so it's, oh, it's going to be rescheduled. Right. Yes, yes, and I'll, I'll probably have um, a word with Gabriel Martinelli as well. So that should be nice. Yes, that's going to save the week. Mm, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you in the meantime for being with us today. Uh, To Charlie, to Daniel, to producer Charlie, to Natalie, a new listener. Do join us again for our other shows during the week. And now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.